It was my birthday. I'm living under a bridge, and I went, I can't do this anymore. So then there was a choice I had to make. One choice was, well, maybe I can go jump off a bridge, and that would end it all. Or two, I had somebody tell me about an AA meeting that I should go to. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another exciting and educational edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. We are going to travel down to Milwaukee today and visit with Mark Flower. And Mark began his military service, uh, military federal service with the 25th Infantry Division and then transferred to the Tank Corps with the 84th Division and completed his uh, military career with the 452nd Combat Support Hospital as a medic. So uh, in in Milwaukee, we'll say hi to Mark Flower. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, Mike. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Let's begin with um, a little bit of your background as uh, a boy, as your child, your family, and tell us something about that before you went into the military. Well, I guess you can say I I, I grew up in a middle-class family, for lack of a better way of saying it. My dad was a hard worker. My my mom was uh, a stay-at-home mom for a while until she, we all got old enough and she kind of moved out. Um, my siblings, of course, we were siblings, so that meant there was always interesting scenarios and situations going on there. Some of us, sometimes we liked each other, sometimes we didn't, which always caused uh, interesting scenarios as we were growing up. I have uh, three brothers and one sister um, as I was growing up, and uh, my brother joined the Marines and he went off to Vietnam. We, uh, well, I guess we got along the best we could, you know, always kind of had our issues. Uh, I was kind of maybe the black sheep of the family growing up, kind of doing more about what I wanted to do back then than in some cases uh, what my parents may have wanted me to do. Um, How about uh, music, pets, sports? Do you play any of that, get involved in any of those things? Uh, as a kid, no, we weren't allowed to have pets, but I love music. Uh, I'm a rock and roll. Pink Floyd's one of my favorite bands till this day. If I'm yeah. listening to music, it's 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 good old 70s rock and roll. Yeah. So so you get ready to go into the military at some time. And what was your decision to go into the military? And, and more importantly, what were your expectations on entering into the military? My dad was in the Navy Reserves for a very long time. Um, so he served in World War II, so he was kind of a big part of my formulization of even thinking about the military. So we were a relatively patriotic family. 
but that was not necessarily the main reason I joined joined the army. Education was part of that. I mean, I figured, well, if I'm going to go do something, I might as well might as well get get an education out of it, not only during, but the, the, all the benefits afterwards, because it was the era stuff. So, so when the decision came, I was more 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 or less willing. I mean, I, I wanted to go. I was excited to go. Um, my recruiter was a pretty good motivator. I mean, got me all psyched up to go infantry, which at the time and being the youngster that I was, kind of doing what I want was doing back in those days, um, I thought, well, geez, this could give me some structure. This could give me some uh, opportunity for leadership stuff. The world was possible at that time. And that's kind of how I approached the military. Um, I could, I was kind of thinking a 20 year stint back then and uh, making it a career. And I was thinking, geez, and then I could retire at 20, and then all of a sudden I'd have a nice pension and have still temp, uh, time to get another 20 years somewhere. But needless to say, that, that didn't necessarily turn out that way. But, um, no, I was excited. I, I wanted to go. Um, I had many reasons to go. I mean, it was even to get away from my parents. I mean, it was like, you know, I was kind of tired of my parents. And I was like, God, let's go. Plus, I'd get paid. You know, the whole thing. I mean, it was a really good opportunity to go do something different, get paid to do it, maybe do some travel. I mean, just like the commercial in a lot of ways, you know. Um, so the bird wanted to fly the nest. Fly yeah. The <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get out of town and. Yeah, it was right after high school, so it was like perfect. You know, it gave you gave me something to do, expanded my horizons, my understandings, and uh, yeah, um, it was fun, even though it sucks sometimes. Yeah. So, so then you actually get into the military and tell tell us a little bit about your military experience. Oh, you know, basics, basic. Get yelled at a lot. So back in seventies. 76 when i was going through basic uh, you can relate basic training was totally different back then they were they well they were mean they they did crazy shit, i swear <laughs> but they did crazy shit drill sergeants were insane um but in the end i understood one of the best one actually one of the really best things my my father ever taught me was you know what just remember mark this is a game they're playing a game so you need to play your game and if you can play your game up against their game and if it's compatible god you can go far in the military because it's all a game he taught me that it's all about propaganda and he taught me about he taught told me that it's all about changing your mindset so I listened to that piece of advice from my father. At that time, one of very few pieces of advice that he may have gave me, but that was one that I kind of I kind of took to heart because my my goal was at that time twenty years. I was going to go twenty years active and out the door and and get on with my life. But uh, of course, that that didn't necessarily uh, happen that way. So basic training was fun, but it also sucked. I mean, you had to go do some crazy stuff, but it taught me some camaraderie taught me some leadership skills just going through basic training because I was kind of lucky, I guess they made me a squad leader and then a platoon guide. So it was like, for whatever crazy reason, they saw some leadership potential, which 
back then thrilled me because I didn't really personally see any leadership potential with, with myself. And it was just, I mean, I was just like a high school partier, you know, just got done with uh, high school, didn't really see myself as anything. So it started to kind of reinforce certain, um, well, just reinforce that I could do some stuff, I guess. And uh, then, go ahead. Well, it, it doesn't sound like there was reinforcing anything as much as it was developing things. It, it was, well, it was allowing me to. Yeah. yeah it, Making yeah, you it aware. Was allowing me to. But, <clears throat> but yet on the same side, they allowed me to develop. Yeah, so, de developing potential. Absolutely. And, and, and they, they were also kind of mentoring. So, I mean, it was a win-win situation, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, basic was great. And then I got to my, well, so I was going to be, uh, I was going to ranger school. So then off to Airborne, I went, and then I broke my leg on my second jump, which kind of crashed the rest of all that because um, here I am limping around Benning, Fort Benning, at Airborne school, not have to do much, just limping around. So then I, I kind of ended up going to the NCO club probably more than they would have liked, and, and, and I kind of probably helped them in their decision. It's time to move me on somewhere to be more productive because I was just not only being non-productive there waiting for my leg to heal, but also in some cases self-destructive because, I mean, really, the only real place I could go to was to go hang out at the NCO club, which allowed me then to drink and which, which opened the door for problems at one point or another in my Army career, actually. So... After the 25th Infantry Division, they sent me. So, I, and I'm just going to qualify this. I was a partier. And uh, first group of guys I met turned me on to this Hawaiian shit that that, that totally knocked my, my socks off. And then that kind of was kind of the journey from that point on in my military career. Um, I smoked pot, got caught. I remember the first day I met my platoon sergeant, I was so stoned, I couldn't even talk to him. And that kind of set the tone. But yet on the same side, you know, I kind of was a partier before I even got into the military. So it, it, it was easy to fall into that because it was just something that was kind of done. Um, but yeah, so... I learned a lot, a lot of good stuff from the military, and I also learned a lot of bad stuff from the military. It was amazing, my, my, my journey, because I, I was really good at stuff that I did, but I also kind of got in trouble, which then enhanced um, my inability to proceed, I guess, under the proper proper way in the United States Army, because I kind of did what I wanted, but yet did what they told me to do, but did what I wanted, if that makes any sense. It, for those it, that have, it, for those that have experienced that themselves, I'm sure they're going to understand that totally. Well, we're with Mark Flower over in Milwaukee, and he's telling telling us uh, about his experience in the military. And and now, so Mark, you're going from the 25th Infantry Division to the 84th Division. 84th, yeah. So I got done. So I got done with uh, my federal service. I I, I took a kind of year off. Well, not really because of an IRR, but I. I spent spent the year with my brother out in San Francisco before coming back to Wisconsin. So I got to hang out with my brother for a while and trying to make it work, trying to make it work out there in California and San Francisco, but it uh, wasn't. So I got back to Milwaukee and um, decided, well, I kind of miss 
certain aspects of the military, and I thought a part-time soldier would be an awesome fucking gig. So, so I joined. I joined the 84th and um, got into a tanker unit. And ironically, that tanker unit also consisted of my dad and my younger brother. So, so not only was it uh, me actually in it, but I also was serving with my father and my younger brother, which was cool in many ways because kind of smooth some rough points but also it kind of sucked because it was my old man you know and he had to kind of see mark and his reality stuff occasionally but in the end it was good um it was a good group of guys um i learned a lot I learned, you know went from the m48s all the way through the m68s to uh just starting the m1s when i just decided it was time to get out so i got I got to learn a whole aspect of armor that uh, I would have never had an opportunity if I wouldn't have done that. Um, and through that time, you know, we, um, but I was a part-time, so I had most of the time I was a civilian and I was part-time. So um, it allowed me to kind of maintain that military thing, my kind of, kind of that camaraderie and the friends and it gave me um but it also gave me a two-week vacation where I could, when we went on our two-week duty, we were able to go kind of get nuts. Whereas back home, I couldn't get as nuts as much because my girlfriend would get mad at me or somebody would get mad at me. But they didn't get mad. We, we just kind of really worked hard. We really played hard. But, but on the same side, it gave me a lot of things that I could hold on to. But yet on the same side, a lot of that stuff that I held on to was kind of bad for me in the outside civilian my, life. my overconfidence that the military had kind of developed also was really bad for me on the outside because you know, just because it was uh it always got me in trouble my over my mouth and my overconfidence always ended up getting me in trouble in the civilian side of things not saying it didn't get me in trouble in the military but that was different this but here it was like these were like bosses, bosses, civilian bosses that I would get in it to it or, you know, it just affected my, my, my ability to uh, talk to folks sometimes. And uh, also, you know, but then my party and also, because the one thing I, I can do say about the military, my military life is it really solidified my party because that's kind of, that was the unfortunate culture part of the, our military at that time. I think it still is that it allowed me to kind of just, solidify my ability to party which when i brought that back to uh the civilian world um that was totally bad because partying then became more of a, a thing than other things i mean it became important in my life so while you were in the military you never really caught on to any any mission or you never caught really caught on to any purpose in the military any um, anything that specifically you were to follow that made you spit shine your shoes and uh, um, a purpose in the military that you were expecting when you first entered? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did that. I played that game, too. You know, I was very good at it. Got soldier in a month. But because of uh, interesting things that were going on, other side of my military career, didn't allow me to exceed because again I got part I partied a lot so I got kind of clawed every once in a while which which means so my my soldier a month 
kept me at, at the company level and then let me go up the battalion. They stopped that, so I didn't go to battalion. So it hit, even though company-wise I was doing really well, but it, it didn't allow me because of my after-work activities did not allow me to take it up the chain of command. So that was a disappointment, which allowed me the opportunity to get angry at them a lot. So, you know, I was angry at them a lot. But yet, on the same side, it was also my behavior that kind of made that so. But I can say that today. Back then, I could have told you a totally different story. But but it was my, my inability to kind of follow the rules based on I would prefer to party. And that's one thing that I've learned after the fact that, that is my partying that allowed me to then um, think differently then, blame them, argue with them, justify my behavior because it was after work, not no, not realizing sometimes how it affected my day at work. So, so I mean, it was just one of those really interesting dynamics for me where, where my partying allowed me to think differently when I was actively partying versus now that I can rationally think about things, if that makes any sense. But it, it does. I wonder if you're not thinking, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but kind of manipulating the situation because it, it wasn't really, obviously it wasn't what you expected because you're, you're, you're angry at the people. Um, but so, so now you're with the 25th infantry division uh, and, or I'm sorry, with the 84th uh, uh, division, and you you will go on to again another division of 452nd um, combat support. Combat hospital. support yeah, hospital. so I actually how did yeah, that work? I actually joined them when uh, so there was a there was a break there, and for me, that's when I started my own personal real personal journey in recovery. So I was partying through the 25th and the 84th division, I was partying partying hard, partying a lot. Um, I started my journey in recovery, my personal recovery in 1993, which totally started changing my mindset on how everything I, well, how I approach stuff. And, uh, and that opened the door for an opportunity that came um, with the 452nd Combat Support Hospital, which I actually, ironically kind of thought it, thought it was a godsend for lack of a better way. I mean, my life had to transcend my military career, combat arms, combat arms. I'm, I'm self-destructing on a real regular basis, um, partying hard, self-destructing. Drove me to the point of homelessness and finding then finding recovery, which uh, then took me to the point of finding my journey. I started my journey with the anonymous group and AA. But in that process, opened the door for me to go back to the 452nd Combat Support Hospital, which then I became a medic, which was actually a really cool stint of duty for me. I got to learn a lot, and uh, I was doing it sober. And uh, that was, not saying the first part wasn't fun. That was also kind of bad. But the second one was where I could say it was fun, and there was really no bad, except for, you know, how reserve units sometimes lie to you. But that's kind of a normal thing in the military anyway tell you stories so yeah then i got done with that and then uh then got on with life but my recovery is what started my journey of life anyways if it wasn't for my my recovery i'd probably be still under that bridge and i'm glad i'm not you know 
explain that a little bit better uh, or a little bit more uh, under that bridge, literally under that bridge or, or figure to no, literally. I mean, I was nine months homeless. I was under a bridge or multitudes of bridges. Yeah. So I did go to shelters. Actually, ironically, if it wasn't for winter, I may have still been under that bridge. If I would have been living in Florida or something, I probably could have possibly still been um, living under bridges or dead. But anyways. What was your interaction with your family? So you've ended your career pretty much still close to your, your dad, close to your parents, not, maybe not uh, I mean, physically close to them, but in the same areas, your, your, your family, your dad and your mom and, and your, your brother. Uh, yeah. How are they taking this? How are they interacting with what they're seeing in, in Mark Flower at this time? Uh, you know, uh, at the time, I didn't think anything because I was too selfish and too, too wound up. But after the fact, oh, they were very concerned. But they also... Um, I drove them to the point where they had to stop enabling. They came to realize all they were doing was enabling me. And, uh, and that's what kind of, so for five, the last five years of, uh, my, my using, I call it my insanities, we were pretty much dislocated. I mean, we didn't see much. I mean, it got to the point where if I would come over to my parents, they would lock the door, pretend they're not home just because, uh, they didn't want the chaos that I was bringing because I was always bringing chaos. You know, and I don't blame the chaos on the military, but I also can say this, that my military career gave me some really good skills to deal with things now that I'm sober. But back in the day, it enhanced my insanities too. So, I mean, it was a kind of double-edged sword. So what, what would you say were some of the events or some of the experiences that you had, Mark, that made you decide it's time to quit this drinking. It's, it's time to quit this using. And was there a particular event, a number of events? What was the thinking in your head that said, I'm actually going to do this? Because any of us who have been a friend to alcohol or to drugs know that there has to be something that comes along for most of us that said, it's time to stop this. Yeah, so actually it was uh, September 21st, 1993. It was my birthday. I'm living under a bridge, and I went, I can't do this anymore. So then there was a choice I had to make. One one choice was, well, maybe I can go jump off a bridge, and that would end it all. Or two, I had somebody tell me about an AA meeting that I should go to. Actually, um, general office in Milwaukee's general office has meetings there and uh instead of jumping off the bridge because i didn't feel like doing that at that moment in time um didn't want to i went to this meeting and because of the folks that i met at this meeting actually not only did i meet them they became really good friends of mine as as the time went but uh welcomed me in talked to me went to a meeting and in the end, the decision I made this decision. I don't want to live this life anymore. It's like this life sucks. Um, I had enough. And uh, and what I'm grateful for is is that I didn't change my mind after that. And I kept doing the things that I needed to do to start my journey of getting better and better and better and better and better. Because um, I could have changed my mind. Because throughout my life prior to that moment, I changed my mind all the time. And so based on that decision has allowed me to move on in my life um, and do some really cool stuff. 
Which is amazing to me, amazing to me. But if it wasn't for my recovery, none of that stuff I, I'm able to do and have done would have been possible. We're, we're speaking with Mark Flower, uh, who spent his military career, uh, as he has just explained, sometimes uh, dedicated to the service, sometimes dedicated to the partying. But now you've come out, and I, I want to go back to two things that you said. You made a decision or had two thoughts in your head. One was to jump off a bridge. One was mm-hmm. to go to AA. Uh, you chose, were, were these significant thoughts or, or, or passing thoughts? Uh, oh, no, they were significant because I went. Yeah. So, so if you, I went and went to AA, I probably would have been hitting the bridge. I, I wonder if we could just share, if you don't want to, that's fine. This is the, sounds like a very, very significant moment. If AA hadn't been there, if that hadn't been a thought in your mind, this could have had a, a completely different outcome for you. And, oh, yeah, I could have been on top of that bridge and... Uh, Going damn, yeah, you know, and, and these people that were there. I'm trying to visualize this because I don't know that much about AA, except that I have enormous respect for them. This was like the net under that bridge that was there to to take you away, or at a time when these people were there. How much credit do you give them? Not necessarily for anything else, but a thank you that they were another option for you. Oh no, I, I give them credit for all that at that that day because. Where I was, I was just looking to find some place where I could fall safely (laughs) because the other opportunity was not so safe. And uh, and they were cool. That's all I can say. They accepted me for who I was. They accepted my 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 dilemma, for lack of a better way. For me, they offered hope and strength. You know, and I ran the, the. the one thing I remember the most from my first step, when it, granted there were many conversations in that day, but from the first conversation was, Mark, you never have to deal with this crap again, as long as you don't do it anymore. And how true that was. Not saying that's an easy situation to, to kind of do, but uh, but it is so true. If I don't drink or drug anymore, my life is so much different. So much different. I believed them. Yeah. For me, it was I believe these folks because everything I have done in my life brought me to this point, and apparently none of it worked. So it was time for me to try something different because if I didn't, I would have been on top of that bridge. So, Going back to meeting these people at AA because I think it's significant, did you get a sense that you trusted them and that here are people that have been through something similar to, that, to not exactly? Oh, yeah. could, number one, I could tell they cared. Number two... They must have understood. They must have had similar backgrounds that would. Uh... Oh yeah, I mean, all of us, all, all <laughs> drug addicts and alcoholics have similar backgrounds. Situations may be different, but right. it's all the same. Going back uh, and again, I have to be very careful how I do this because I want to be respectful of your feelings. You're going back to all of these years living under the bridges. All there must have been cold nights, rainy nights, hungry nights. Uh, and so now you've gotten to a point where you see some hope and you mentioned the word hope yourself and you grasped onto that. And so now you've grasped onto this little bit of hope. You've joined AA and take us from there to where you are today with the many, many projects that you have done uh, and, 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 and how much of a value is your own personal experience in doing what you do today because you've been there yourself? Well, from that, from, from my first AA, my first AA meeting, my journey there went where I was still homeless, 
But then I started, I went to three meetings a day. I had nothing else to do. I wasn't working. So I go to meetings because I, I, I by listening to some others and as, as that progressed, I realized if I don't go to these things, I'm probably going to go back to what I was used to. And that's, that's the one thing I didn't want to do. Um, so I just kept going to meetings and I kept going to meetings. And eventually, this is still back in the beginning, my parents kind of heard about, I don't know how, I mean, it just got weird where, they, they said, okay, you seem to be being very serious in what you're trying to do now. And they invited me back into their house because I was not living anywhere. Um, which was cool because it was getting cold out too. So I found out later that my dad had a friend that was part of the fellowship. Um, and once my, my dad's friend put the pieces together, kind of was informing on me. Which was actually probably, I, 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 even though it's supposed to be anonymous, I, I, I don't fault that part, if that makes any sense. Because uh, my friends, my dad's friend was telling him, you must be pretty serious. I see him all the time. And, uh, well, anyways, that opened a door for that, which didn't allow me a respite from being outside and being homeless anymore. And then um, it uh, started my journey of personal wellness in the aspect of talking to many other friends, I'll call them friends, um, realizing that I'm not alone because sometimes we all feel like we're alone in the reality of it all. It's just we're, we're really never alone. What makes us alone is our ability to isolate. And that, that was one of the things that AA actually kind of helped me with. Is that it allowed me to kind of force myself not to isolate because that, in a lot of ways, was a kind of a... I don't mind that. Even today, sometimes I work on that stuff because I have to. Um, which then started me because AA was built on service. So through that, I, I, I started to understand service and being of service, which meant that. Uh, so I just try to help. Now I just try to be helpful. But in that same aspect of being helpful, started me on a career <laughs> because one of my passions is for suicide prevention, addiction, mental health crisis. And uh, in that aspect, and which then, well, I don't know, allowed me to start participating in, in uh, other things. So I worked at uh, the Manitoba houses. I was a house manager for uh, um, recovering addicts and alcoholics. Um, so I managed that and I did some work and managed some a spot for sales houses. I, uh, and that same process became the the general manager for the Eleanor Foundation way back in the beginning, which is a recovery club, and 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 doing work of being a service that way, which then turned into uh, a couple other odds and ends, Wisconsin Voices of Recovery, and and a few other ads, which turned into Dry Hooch, and then where we had me and Bob Curry kind of Bob's idea, me a, ferv a fervent supporter where we pushed dry hooch forward and starting to be of service to not only, but for veterans, but also veterans in crisis. And then just taking it through where I do work with the medical college now and, and uh, other organizations to, through dry hooch, we did the veteran veterans court. Uh, through uh, my work in the veterans community, finally got our first veterans peer respite all the way through the process 
from from advocating in the very beginning, getting the getting the legislature to finally agree to it, to then finally getting them to fund it. So I was part of some really cool things based on that decision. And actually that to me, that was based on that decision way back in 1993 that I just don't want to live this way anymore. That decision not to jump off the bridge, but to go to an AA meeting was critical even to this day. So we are now 27 years later that you've made this decision. Maybe you could just very quickly uh, describe or tell us about uh, Dry Hooch, what what that actually means and what that organization is about. Dry Hooch is is based on and is a peer support model. It's all about peer support, veterans helping veterans who survived the war, survived the peace, because it's the peacetime stuff that gets us in trouble, ironically, more than it is the wartime stuff, even though the after effects of the war can affect our peacetime stuff. So so they're a peer support organization, and their job is to help, you know, transition vets. Um, I work now with uh, the Medical College and the Captain John D. Mason Project, and it's a project based on suicide prevention, but on the front end of suicide prevention versus usually the back end, because the back end, all the chaos has already happened. On the front end, if we get people in the front end hooked up with services, or not only serve, but access the services, that hopefully it'll affect the back end in a more positive light versus always just reacting to that suicide attempt or the stuff building up to that suicide attempt. Um, so it's, it's more about, so we're, we're taking it a different look at suicide prevention and trying to get our veterans hooked up on the front end so that if those, for lack of a better way, uh, bumps in the road happen, that they already know where to go versus wait till we're now reacting to a situation. All right. We're, we're speaking with Mark Flower, a former Army soldier and veteran now who's doing a lot of his work and had this um, significant moment when he decided to make a choice between jumping off a bridge and going to AA for treatment and has done many, many things in the Milwaukee community to help with veterans uh, in suicide, um, drug addiction, when you're referring to the front end, we're talking about the front end would be, would be the lifestyle, the, the, the thinking of somebody before they actually decide to take their life. That's what you mean by the front end. The front end of something is the, the actual act of suicide. The back end is, is what happens after that might take place. Well, actually, me, the front end is making sure they have the resources if they choose to use it before that actual event. Right. Because suicide in its own right is a accumulation of events it's not one initial event it's usually an accumulation of things that build up to that point of extreme hopelessness which then allows for that thought to be there um so what we're trying to do with captain d mason so it's so we're working a lot with our veterans to get them enrolled in the va so if you get enrolled in the va because a lot most of our veterans aren't enrolled in the va And statistics have also shown that 17 out of 20 of our veteran suicides are veterans that actually aren't enrolled in the VA, is to kind of get them folks enrolled. Um, So at least they're they're now aware that they they have, this is what they have and they can go utilize. So we're trying to get the number on the front end, hopefully knock down the back end, if that makes any sense. It, it makes absolute sense. But share with us the importance of peer counseling, peer 
availability. Uh, peer support? Peer support, yes. Peer support, in my mind, is very important because if I have someone that kind of gets me, understands me, same, same kind of experiences, that when I come and talk to them and it's not like they're trying to understand because they get it, there's a difference. Here it's like a counselor. If I'm going to go talk to a counselor, a counselor probably has not, at least the majority of them, have not experienced the same situations that I've experienced. The life experience, right. Yeah, our life experience, because every individual's life experience is different, even though they may be similar, but they're all different. And uh, But me, let's just use this as an, me as a drug addict and alcoholic, most drug addicts and alcoholics that kind of get that fact, they know the similarities, even though there are differences, because situations are different. Similarities are always the same. I drank, I drugged, I got in trouble. Any other person like me, they drank, they drugged, and got in trouble because that's kind of how it always ended up. Not necessarily all the time, but most of the time. That's why we usually end up where we end up. And just to qualify me, once I started, I couldn't stop. And it usually, I drove it to trouble because that was the only way I would stop for any length of time was to end up in trouble one way or another. So, yeah, so we bring our experiences, we bring our strengths, we bring our hopes into a conversation to individuals, but then we also we get it, which is a total different kind of a conversation than would say me going to my therapist going, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you should maybe, I suggest maybe you should try this, but yet they're suggesting out of a book where I would say this used to work, this worked for me. Uh, an now, actual you, life experience, your actual yeah, life experience. Yeah, and this is what I did personally to work through that. Now, this may not work for you, but yet I know it worked for me, so there's probably a better chance this could work. So maybe you should try this. So I bring my recovery experience with my insanity experience, and um, it's amazing how, and if one is willing, really kind of really got that to that point of being totally willing that they got to change, it's amazing how that really works well. And then today's peer supporters also know when it's time to get more help, professional help, because a lot of us may need some professional help. It's not my job to know that, but I know that I know what I can't do, which means, okay, I need some other help because that's stuff I don't even, all I can do is relate my personal experiences and my own personal recovery and then suggest as a peer supporter versus maybe a doctor telling you. And the people usually told me to do something, <laughs> eh, good luck. <laughs> maybe I will, yeah. maybe I won't. Will yeah. it get me out of trouble? Then maybe I will. If it was you know. beneficial to you to get by. Yeah, because back in those, I was pretty selfish. I would do whatever I needed to continue using. When it came down to it, that's what I did whatever I needed to do. So now when you we get to this point in your life where you have joined AA, you have done a lot with the Medical College of Wisconsin, you've done a lot with uh, the VA hospital, you've done a lot with Dry Hooch, you've done a lot with uh, other community organizations, all uh, to help improve the mental health of for veterans, or the, let's say this, let me say it better, improve that transition from the military to civilian life for 
for yeah there are transitions anywhere because we, we yeah. transition from anywhere yeah. i mean we still have vietnam vets that are still going to jail yeah. we still have vietnam air we got we got vets going to jail all the time yeah we do we got vets going to school i mean there's many different kind of transitions and in my mind is if we don't transition well to begin with no matter where we end up doing we still haven't really transition that way would you say part of that and an important part of that transition is realizing that you have to take control of yourself you have to take the steps you have to make the decisions you can make a lot of transitions but if there are just to make a transition from one event to another one lifestyle to another without any real determination that you want the va to do this yeah. you want the hospital to do this you want the medical college to do this it really has to be something where you take responsibility but for yes. yourself no, no, I agree with that, Mike. And if I would not have took responsibility at that moment in time, I would have changed my mind. And you'd now, still be I, under the I bridge. I didn't know where that, trans, trans, um, that responsibility would take me, but then there was that leap of faith. But I had to start taking responsibility for Mark because for, for, for up to all that, I had many a wealth of excuses, a wealth of reasons, a wealth of whatevers. Um, but the one thing I never really wanted to look at is me and how was my participation in the journey? Because it was always easier for me to blame others. So I didn't have to look at myself. Kind of sounds like our politics of today. But anyways, I had to take responsibility and then I had to really decide. And then in that same aspect, I had to really decide on how to move forward. And I decided in that moment that I know nothing, everything I did believe got me to this point of having to make this decision to begin with. Now I got to let it go. And so I gave it to my buddies and my friends and my associates and my mentors at uh, NAA because they were staying sober. And that's kind of where I wanted to be. So I give that to my military service, that drive, because when I finally made that decision, that stuff kicked in. That training actually kicked in because there, there was like a mission, a new mission. Back in my military time, there was always a mission, and I could take that and drive through the end of that mission, but then I didn't have to do it anymore. This has now become my my own personal well-being requires me to stay responsible, do the things that I need to do for me to allow me to help others. And and, and really, and in the end, that's kind of how that all works. It does, but there's also must be the element that this work that you're doing for I don't, I, it's hard for me to even class it as for individuals. It's like for doing it for the overall health of the human spirit or the, the human uh, being attached to something bigger than yourself, bigger than life itself, or bigger than just human life. That must be therapy for you. That it makes you feel good. It gives you a purpose. It gives you a sense of, uh, yes. that, that must, and, and it must be extremely valuable to you. For, for me, in my journey of learning how to become of service, for whatever reason, this is what I end up doing because believe me, when I first came into this program and even five years into this program, what I kind of do today, I would have never thought, would have just never thought how my journey was. But I just kept on, I call it, if I, I do the next right thing, it's amazing what will happen. And, uh, and so that's kind of what I did and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And it just, it just kind of just seemed to have gone that way. 
I'm more of the big picture type of guy. Some people tell me today that I'm this really big picture type of guy. Um, I, to this day, still say when people ask, kind of ask me, what do I do? I say, I just do stuff. <laughs> because the reality is, because I really don't know, even though I have a good idea, but I really don't know what I'm doing half the time anyways. And there's going to be people that hear this one. And they'll probably all laugh, especially the people that know me, especially or my, my close associates anyway. Because um, really... We just, I just do, and and I participate, and I become part of, and and being part of allows for a really good mindset because it really ain't me. It's just the whole, it's it's just the whole thing. I mean, it's just it's that thing that's bigger than your life. Yeah, and cool shit happens. Well, yeah, you could call it that uh, certainly, but it's powerful to get out of yourself and realize there is that uh, that. connection to a, to a life that's larger than the individual. I mean, you, you, you must be doing this even though you want to somewhat joke about it and say, well, I just do stuff. But you do stuff in a world that you trust now, that you believe in, with people that you trust and you believe in. And that's the bigger framework of your life. For example, uh, and, and I believe me, I'm not here to back any organization. We certainly don't. But the Medical College of Wisconsin has really benefited and provided and given us as veterans many, many outlets that improve our, our health care in so many different ways. And so has Dry Hooch and so is the VA and so have so many other organizations that you're speaking of when you say, well, I just do stuff. But you do all this stuff with these organizations that have really helped us uh, to provide this this period support. And so in that regard, we are stepping forward, as you would say, on the front end of all of these issues of suicide and drug use. But we're not doing this alone. We couldn't do it alone. Nobody's doing this alone. And I think that's one of the things that's been most impressive for me in listening to you, Mark, is that you're aware that you're doing this with other people. But it's also therapy for you. Oh, yeah. Because again, service, selfless service. I, I don't do this for me even though it helps me. Um, that's one thing that the anonymous program taught me is that it's it's about others. It ain't about me. Cause when I'm helping others, I'm out of me. I, I'm out of my brain. I'm out of I'm out of my a lot of my stuff. Hey Mark, I'm gonna stop you here and ask you to repeat that once again. When you're doing this, you're out of yourself. And you're where? When doing service, I'm out of myself. I am. I'm, I'm out of my brain. I'm out of. I'm out of the things. I'm out, out, out of my ego. I'm out of all that internal stuff that always kept me in trouble. And that's what service to me is. Is about helping others, which means now I don't have to look at me. But in the same side, it also helps me do more of the right thing because now I'm helping others. It's really an interesting journey that if I'm helping others, I'm not worried about me too much yeah. because I'm helping others. Right. Even though I do have to, just on a caveat there, I still have to maintain my own personal well-being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that being said, learning that journey of being a service helped me do a lot of cool, cool stuff that I would have never thought of even 15 years ago. You mentioned another interesting and, and very important part of this whole journey when you say that it's um, it's uh, your, your service to others, but you you briefly just caught in there and said, and I but I have to maintain my own health too. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to realize that this is being a peer support. That isn't a panacea that you're, everything is fine, but we still have to guide ourselves because the rest of our life is this journey. To, yeah. to understand better, to improve better, to to be of service more. But we do originally have to come to that first decision 
to be responsible to ourselves. Yeah, because if it wasn't for that decision, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be here talking to you <laughs> in all reality. Yes. Um, but yeah, my, my individual personal well-being is important. I mean, because if I'm not well, it's really hard to share wellness. Right. So I, I know what I need to do. I, I, I do three meetings a week. I, I, I have people that I talk to that I, I kind of need to talk to on a regular basis. I even have a part-time psychologist, even though... Even though he doesn't realize he's my part-time psychologist, <laughs> if I need to talk about something even that way. The cool thing is, is that uh, this is everything that, ironically, the Army kind of taught me. That even though I wasn't willing to see it that way, to where um, the anonymous, or when I started my journey in recovery, solidified kind of what I already knew because of the resilience side of things that they always try to teach. Um, but then they, they uh, reinforced that journey, which then made it, I guess, easier for me to do because it kind of wasn't me all the, at all the time. I was just too busy denying a lot of that stuff before I realized in my decision to come to recovery that I was denying it, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. One of the other aspects that we haven't touched on, but I would like to just ask you quickly, and that is you have come to this critical moment, significant moment in your life where you chose either to, um, at least the idea of jumping off a bridge or going and paying a visit to AA, but we forget that it, we don't just wake up one day and make that decision. There's a lifetime or decades or can be decades of absolute depression that yeah. are out there. And I'm always concerned because I had my own experience with suicidal thinking before I went to the hospital in Toma. But if I look back on it, there were punishing three decades of just depression, darkness, unhappiness, no spirituality, no joy in life, no seeing colors, no recognizing birds, no recognizing the beauty in, in life or any other life, just that my eyes were open, but nothing was being absorbed, internalized depression. And I think there, there, that day that you decided to go to AA, really, I, I think many of us would might want to think about if we could go back, having moved that day up a lot sooner in our life than what it was, but I'm not so sure that we can. I, 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 but there is that, that I, I don't want to be on a topic of we just come to that day where we go to AA. There's a lot of suffering. So for me, to start dealing with my mental health stuff, because I got my stuff, depression and the other uh, interesting odds and ends, I had to get sober. I had to stop using drugs and alcohol to realize that I've actually had this, this other stuff. Sometimes, and that, it's again, to me, I've come to realize that that's, an, that's an, also an individual thing, because sometimes folks need to work on their mental health before they can address their alcohol and addictions. So to me, it's not a one thing fix everything, because everybody's different. I've come to realize through my journey, professionals may argue with me, because they do sometimes, but... Some people need to fix their mental health side before they can go after their, their addiction or alcohol side. Some people have to fix their alcohol or addiction side before they can actually go after their mental health side. If I could have done it sooner, um, sure. But I guess it took me as long as it took me to finally come to that point. You know, the other side of that is we're pretty stubborn individuals. I know I can be. Um, 
So it really took a lot of beating for me. And I can take a lot of pain, I guess. But it took a lot of beating and pain for that moment in time where that decision became even an option. You know, I could I could say I may have thought about stopping drinking for whatever the reason was out there and doing drugs and did it for a minute. But my, my biggest problem up until that point of making that September, well, September 21st, 1993, was that prior to that, um, I couldn't stay stopped. I couldn't figure out how to stay stopped because you're right, Mike. It was, I had to commit to a total life change. And on that day, September 21st, 1993, was a very deep conscious decision that I got to do anything but what I'm doing now. And I know it worked. I know I know I meant it because I still do it. Um, let me just ask you if it's okay. How old you are now? I'm uh, 62. 62 years old. So this has been a part. This struggle has been a part of your life for a significant part of your life. Yeah, 35 years. 35 years that you have been through this struggle, and. When you were earlier referring to the front end of these experiences for people, what kind of reassuring words could you give to people in that front end who need to hear the peer talk and in reference to that front end that might be a valuable information to them in your experience? Oh, that one I would just tell you, no, you can do this. You can do this. If you want to change your life, you can. You just got to kind of commit a little bit. Do you think it would be comforting, sorry to interrupt and over, over you, but just so you can follow up on that thought, do you think it would be comforting for people who are on the front end who would get the message that you can change? That's a wonderful message. But there's also people out there who have made that decision, who are there and available for you to connect with yes. that can help you make that change and support you through the journey. Yeah, I think that's um, really important. That's what kind of peer support is about. But also, though, there's also the anonymous side of things, too. You know, peer support nowadays is a little bit more professional side, even though it's it's a little bit more professional, whereas on the anonymous side, it's just, it depends on your sponsor in all reality. Um, but, but both sides, yeah. I mean, I, I always go with it can be done. And I, and I always use me as that example, because I can do it, you can do it. I know you can it's just that, you know, it's difficult sometimes. I, I mean, it's very difficult. I remember I, I tell people, you know, you succeeded every day. If you're working on the alcohol and drug side, you succeed every day. If no matter what <laughs> happened, you just don't pick up today. You succeeded. And um, because we at that point don't succeed much. I mean, we were always something's always going backwards or going wrong or self-induced chaos uh, depression i mean sleeping under bridges there there's no great joy in that for most people no i loved it till i didn't i convinced myself that it allowed me freedom so how, i don't have to report to anybody so now the, these changes you've made have been in your peer work with the captain john d mason um project at, uh, at the, the medical college, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful program, and the work that you've done in other community outreach, uh, that has been for the community. It's tied you to the community very well, been very therapeutic for you in that. But how about your family? Have, have you reengaged with them? Has that been... Um... Yeah, my parents are dead, but uh, yes, when they were alive, we got 
me and my parents got closer, which was awesome. Yes. Um, could actually even hug each other, which was even more awesome. Cause there was a time that wasn't even possible. Um, unfortunately with my siblings, well, there were siblings. We have our stuff. But as far as your parents were concerned, because through this oh, whole yeah. conversation, I, I, your parents were there. You, you were able to, should we say, patch that up or make that better? And, oh, yeah. And that's got to be a good a good outcome for this as well. Yeah, not only was I able to say, tell them literally I love you and meant it, because there was times I would say that and didn't before 93. I call my insane years. But not only that, that they were able to say it too, which was something that was very unusual for my parents. They were not the most loving parents, I guess. And some of that might have been me for a long time. But, you know, in the end, it turned out good, which was all okay. Wonderful. Uh, b- before we go now, Mark, just uh, tell us, is there some place where our audience can find out more about the Captain John D. Mason uh, program or any of the other outreach, uh, Facebook page? Yes. Yeah. So we have a Facebook page on social media. Type in Captain John D. Mason. We are working on our websites because we work at the Medical College. Very wonderful organization, but yet takes some time to do stuff. Um, too many, sometimes there's just way too many rules. But you're also in collaboration with the VA and Captain John D. Mason, Be There, Wisconsin. If you just type in Be There, Wisconsin, you can find the webpage. And we also have a Facebook page. Actually, that's a Facebook group. So if you find that and you want to join, please join, because that's 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 kind of our suicide pre- prevention effort, more of a coalition building, people gathering kind of thing that we're pushing and that the VA pushes. And then we are also at the Captain John D. Mason are pushing because it's about it's about preventing or stopping suicide, um, stopping very hard, preventing. Yes, we can. I think we'd probably be uh, a little bit neglect if we didn't uh, mention the suicide hotline. Yes. If you know what that is. I'd have to look, Mike. I'll, I'll get it and add it to this. And, 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 there, and then, of course, uh, I have never done this before. <laughs> I have to I have to argue with you a little bit about uh, the work that the medical college does, because I, they're a bureaucracy and I've, I've worked for the U.S. government. And if you want to see how things can be slowed down. Uh, they get really bogged down in the U.S. government for in the Department of State. So I, I think the Medical College of Wisconsin, oh, in, in no, my experience, I, I, does an extraordinarily good job about getting programs up, programs developed, helping students develop programs. So uh, that's my that's my own confrontation with Mark Flower to back up the medical. And I agree with all of that, Mike. So it's really not a conf- confrontation. It's sometimes. The bureaucracy slows down stuff like websites. Yes, I agree with you totally. My partners at the college would forgive me if I didn't say something critical. <laughs> so, so we have a lot of really cool. Uh, I mean, like the VA does some really good stuff. The medical college does some really cool things, veterans-wise. We have uh, a lot of really cool nonprofit organizations out there that do veteran stuff. Like uh, the Mental Health of America has the Veteran Peer Respite, that first Veteran Peer Respite in the country, actually. So, which is very exciting. Unfortunately, COVID. It's kind of slowed that process down. Um, we got uh, Vets Journey Home. We got the well, Veterans Health Coalition. We got the... Uh, well, Na- uh, NAMI is certainly out there, too. Uh, no, NAMI is actually more on the family side. But it's impossible for me, with my experience, to ever think of a veteran without thinking of the family that must be there with the veteran somewhere in his life or her life. 
and that it's really the family who should be the center of attention for for healthcare should be the family, not just the veteran, because behind every veteran there is there is that family. Oh, I so NAMI is very has some very 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 good resources for the families of people who are struggling with uh, with addictions and and mental health issues. So, uh, Mark, I want I wanted thank you very much. Uh, you do have a Facebook page as well, Mark Flower, F L O W E R, yep. first name Mark, M A R. Yeah, you'll see uh, Snoopy driving the Grateful Dead car. Holy God, what a strange journey it's been. <laughs> well, I'm glad you shared it with us. And I know a lot of your work, and it's wonderful work. And, you know, love you for doing all of it and uh, the things that you have helped. It's hard to imagine how many people have listened to your messages and gone and uh, confidently sought help for themselves to improve their lives. So thank you for that. Thank you for continuing to do it. And thank you for coming and sharing yeah, thank you for all the stuff you do mike because you've had a really cool journey too and we yeah. just need to keep it up getting the message out and yeah. you know to me it's one veteran at a time but it's also all of us together that help because it's our past journeys <laughs> yeah. that uh, provide the education that we are sharing for those who are in transition uh, whatever that transition may be in their life to something better, uh, whether it's the veteran or the family. It's the community, Michael. Yes, and, and there's something better than the individual. There's something better than ourselves. So thank you, Mark Flower, and we will see you at the next uh, John D. Mason meeting. Sounds good. Thank you, Mike. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, www.orbanfoundationforveterans.org. The Orban Foundation is proud to thank the Charles E. Kubli Foundation for helping to make this episode of the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast possible. Donations help the Orban Foundation to bring you the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast and allows us to expand our services in reaching out to our fellow servicemen and women. Please visit us and consider making a donation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While at our website, feel free to browse our services and leave a comment on how you think we can improve what we do for you. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.